anybody who believes that Trump and Trumpism are the same thing is really mistaken. Trumpism has a long afterlife. All Trump testifies to is that it's a movement much larger than himself. And I think we need to be wary of that. And we need to be aware that the United States is on the abyss of fascism and authoritarianism, and that we need to be conscious of the fact that democracy is, is in its death knell. Welcome to episode 42 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of this show. It's okay to feel relief that a fascist no longer sits in the Oval Office and has the nuclear codes. It's not okay to stop paying attention. The history of the last four years is being written now. This is a moment that the regime's crimes, from the Muslim ban to the concentration camps and tent cities on the Mexican border, and so much more, must be dragged into the light and fully repudiated. Those who are responsible must be held to account, and we must come to grips with the complicity and petty individualism, even among many that claim to oppose fascism, that enabled this. Our potential is in raising up the millions of people in this country who don't want to live in Trump or Pence's cruel and brutal future. In them, raising up to see their power outside of the normal channels of politics as usual. We need to watch the fascists, those that have been removed from power, those who remain in power, and their movement. Had Trump won the election, that mob of white supremacists that wanted to murder everyone from AOC to Mike Pence would be celebrating with victory rampages, not angry rebellions. Had that mob succeeded in murdering more people, and apparently it was due to luck that they didn't, where would we be? How close did we come to full-blown fascism? What are we faced with now and what is needed? We will continue to explore these questions on this podcast and encourage people to act with us via refusefascism.org. In today's episode, we're sharing an interview with scholar Henry Giroux. Henry is the McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest in the English and Cultural Studies Department and is the Paulo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. For those listening, this is being recorded on Wednesday, January 20th. Trump has packed his things, has exited the White House. Trump is no longer president. Biden is. I wanted to start with what difference does it make that he isn't in power anymore? Well, I think it makes a significant difference in the sense that when you bring fascism and fascist politics to the center of power and move it away from the margins and all of a sudden have the power to implement policies and promote ideologies and legitimate and normalize horrendously barbaric principles, that's dangerous, you know, to say the least. I don't have a lot of respect for liberals, but the fact of the matter is that people at the margins are not going to be thrown under the bus in the way that the cruel, oppressive policies, of course, of Trump did. I mean, you think about a Stephen Miller in power. Think about this cultural apparatus that every day reinforced and distorted historical memory in ways that miseducated 74 million people. I don't think we want to underplay the importance of Trump not being in power. This is about power. 
you know, this is about a distinction between a liberal notion of power versus a fascist notion of power. For the moment, I'm relieved he's not in. I'm relieved that he's gone. I think that there is a tendency on the part of intellectuals, particularly to respond to that kind of question by saying they're all fascists. Well, tell that to people who are getting $200 a week, $400 a week, as opposed to $1,400. Tell that to people who lost their Medicare, as opposed to people who might not. Tell that to people for whom the politics of surviving is on their agenda every day and dominates their lives. I actually think people who take that position in some way become complicit with a kind of cruelty that we need to address. I strongly agree with the criminal complicity element of those who say they're all the same. And I really appreciate the important moral stand that you bring forward. I mean, to say that concentration camps turning into death camps means nothing for our immigrant siblings or the moves to not just put LGBTQ people back in the closet, but to erase them from public society. Or to punish them. Yeah, exactly. The effects of power make a difference. And so I just wanted to ground ourselves in that understanding as we explore the damage that continues and the work that we have to to continue to do. I'm going to quote heavily in today's interview from Henry's piece on truthout.org, downplaying Trumpism is dangerous. And it was posted on Truthout on January 15th, where you wrote, the appeal to racism, voter suppression, and state violence became central elements of the Republican Party with Nixon's Southern strategy and evolved with ever more intensity and dire consequence with the election of Donald Trump. And I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about the roots of Trumpism, where it comes from as a movement beyond this one singular nasty individual. I think the central question that you've raised is very, very important. And the question is not, aren't we happy that Trump is gone? I mean, I think the question is, what the hell are the conditions that brought him here in the first place? That's really the issue, because it it exceeds personalizing Trump and calling him a clown or incompetent as people like Corey Robbins do. I mean, just a despicable position, I think. If you look back, and while we can point to the McCarthy era, we can point to the Red Scare, you know, we can point to, you know, the genocide against indigenous people, you know, the legacy of slavery, what happened after Reconstruction, uh, Jim Crow. The United States has a long history of militant, exploitive, genocidal behavior. And I think maybe the first question that we have to ask, and one of the hardest questions is, what is it about our history that we really need to understand that not only has been apologized for, erased, or ignored, but really needs to be rewritten, re-understood, reclaimed, and reanalyzed in terms of the way in which it has endlessly reproduced itself? And what are the conditions that made that reproduction possible? And what are the turning points where we move from a kind of mild version of these kinds of poisonous sort of trends to a more intensified and almost endorsement of the legacy of of oppression, working class, black, people of color, immigrants? Something happens in the 1970s. That's for sure. There's a counter-revolution. And that counter-revolution is basically a counter-revolution against the 60s, because the 60s did something dangerous. The 60s argued not only against, of course, the Vietnam War, the 60s also said that the universities and other public spaces had to now be open. They were expanding the notion of equity, and they were expanding the notion of oppression. 
all of a sudden we're talking about civil rights, we're talking about gay rights, we're talking about workers' rights. All of a sudden we began to see a modicum of oppression that began to envelop this country in a way that spoke to a wide variety of groups, which also made a wide variety of demands. That so frightened the right that you get the Powell memo of the 1970s which makes the claim that democracy is in excess. You get the Trilateral Commission much later on that says the same thing, that says we have to stop this. But the Powell Commission is particularly interesting because it says this is not just an economic issue, it's an educational issue. We have to fight on the war of ideas. Well, the war of ideas really come into play with a vengeance with Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan marries uh, Margaret Thatcher, and they have an enormous number of children. They have Clinton, they have Obama, and others, who basically carry on this neoliberal nightmare. And it's a nightmare that says that the social state is awful, it needs to be destroyed, workers have no rights, young people are a burden, people of color basically are toxic. And all of a sudden, you get the logic of disposability being coupled with a notion of progress, that is as cruel as it is fascistic. And all of a sudden, all the elements of fascism that we have seen in the past are being reconceived, reproduced, and mediated and wrapped in the American flag. Whether we're talking about militarism, ultranationalism, the racial cleansing, you know, the elevation of emotion over instinct, the rise of the spectacle, the emptying out of politics. And it's in those conditions whether we're talking about Nixon and the Southern strategy or Bush's racism when he came to power or the wars, and of course in Iraq and Afghanistan, they create the conditions for such economic misery, uncoupled from any sense of racism and a logic which would allow people to understand that these things all come together. You have people who are desperate outside of the outright racists and so forth and so on, who are all of a sudden are powerless and they're looking for, you know, you, what do you have? You have the people who are the, the liberals, the Democratic Party, who are in bed with Goldman Sachs. And of course, then you have the Republicans who really have an answer. They say, look, we know what the answer is. Black people, they're toxic. They're taking away your jobs. People advocating for gay rights, they're a threat to your children. You don't want them babysitting your children, right? We need to go back to Disney when everything was really fabulous. You know, let's reinvent Main Street. And it worked. I mean, I'm sorry, it worked. That narrative resonated because the left no longer had a narrative that could really touch people's lives. And the intellectuals on the left were speaking in a language that five people understood. From the 1980s on, what we begin to see, the hardening of a narrative that no longer hides in the shadows. It then becomes a badge of honor. And with Trump, it actually becomes a defining narrative of power. And that narrative says one thing in particular. It says, we believe in unity for white people. It says, we believe in unity that excludes workers. We believe in a public sphere only whites and the rich can occupy. And it is the closest we have come to fascism in this country, it seems to me, in its history. There was... This one part in this article that I just wanted to quote for listeners, which was, history may have been made with the second impeachment of Trump, but the impeachment, while notable, does not offer any guarantees that Trump's control over the Republican Party or his massive influence on his social base will disappear. Nor is there any implication that Trump's big lie about losing the election, inseparable from his longstanding racism and white supremacist views, will suddenly dissipate. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on how you see this legacy. I think there are a couple of things. Yeah, you don't want to underestimate the power of the big lie. The power of the big lie is fundamental because it seems to me that when you have a massive propaganda machine to endlessly reproduce it, both in the mainstream and in the conservative press, 
it's not a matter of whether you know the lie is right or wrong. It's a matter that its consistency mobilizes people with a narrative that is comfortable to believe and provides easy answers. But it does more than that. The big lie, in a sense, creates a kind of ideological form of self-containment, part of an ideological totalism, as I put it in one piece, in which the cult can basically cling to and find a sense of community, then endlessly reproduced, of course, by the corporate media. But I, I think the other side of this is that not only is there a kind of ideological firewall at work here, unlike anything we've ever seen before, but there's also a Republican Party that basically is a fascist party. I mean, I, I don't know how else to talk about this party. You know, this is not a party of moderates, it's not a party of liberals. I mean, even Nixon, he talked about a universal wage. Can you imagine? Richard Nixon? I mean, can you imagine Trump talking about a universal wage? It seems to me that what has happened with respect to this party is that this party believes in minority rule. Let's be honest. Minority rule, as many people have argued, including a number of historians, the end point of minority rule is, is authoritarianism. There's no other way. And you, you mobilize it through voter suppression, redlining, all the policies that you need to do to prevent people from voting. Well, who are the people that you don't want to vote? People who don't want to vote are black people. When you look at the way in which the election results were contested, as you know, it was claimed about black people cheated. Detroit, you know, Philadelphia, you know, all these, all these ironically black neighborhoods, right? So you've got a Republican Party that basically is not going to change. I mean, I think that the claim that Mitch McConnell might now see the light or that the Republican Party, come on, 125 people in after the attack on the Capitol, 124, unbelievable, 124 Republicans after the attack on the Capitol voted. More, please. They, more, please. They bought the lie. I mean, it's this is ideological entrenchment. The other side of this is that Timothy Snyder, as you probably know, has talked in his recent piece in the New York Times about two elements of the Republican Party. The gamers, they game the system under, under people like Trump because they get tax relief, then they get all kinds of benefits. Then there are the breakers. And where I think Snyder goes wrong is he seems to suggest we want to game the system because people like Trump are advantageous for them. I think the breakers rule the party. They're people who hate democracy. They hate black people. They're racist. They're stupid and they're ignorant. And ignorance is never innocence, particularly when it combines with political power. I think at one level, you have a political party in power that's enormously detrimental to democracy. But the other side of this is you have 74 million people that actually believe that Trump was right. Do you think they're going to go away? Really? Do you think that Biden in this silly call for unity that seems to forget what Obama did around the question of unity with the Republican Party? He bent over. That's what he did. Every time he wanted to appease them, he adopted one of their policies and it went nowhere except to reinforce the legitimacy of far right policies. So it, it seems to me that there are two things that we need to address. One is what does it mean to begin to change consciousness in this country so that all of a sudden matters of truth and evidence become central to an educational process? How do we take advantage of these educational apparatuses in which the left and others can come together and really begin a massive education campaign? Marx was wrong on something. He said, no, we don't need to interpret the world. We need to change it. Actually, you can't change the world unless you understand it. I'm sorry. You don't know what's going on. How can you change the world? I mean, if you're misinterpreting what the world is about. The other part is the fragmentation of the left. And the fragmentation of the left is not an argument against differences in the left. It's an argument for finding common ground, finding a master narrative. And that master narrative should be the end of capitalism. That's the narrative. 
I mean, it seems to me that as long as we believe that democracy and capitalism are the same thing, we're on a death train. And that train is not going to Switzerland. It's going to crash right into a wall. It seems to me that there are some of the things we need to think about. That last part could be a whole discussion in and of itself about the left. And I would love to have a future discussion on that for the purposes of this. I want to dig into the first part. Maybe it's because I'm an educator. That's where I want to go. I think it is a big question of what do you do to reassert that there is objective reality, that there's no alternative facts And there's no, well, from my perspective, the danger of all this relativism on the left. I mean, how do you fight for the truth? Or how do you you teach people in a mass way to think critically? It seems to me the first thing that you have to address is what kind of future do you want for your children in the United States? What kind of future do you want? How do you want to talk about democracy? What are the forces that have undermined it? How do they bear down, those forces bear down very directly on people's lives? How does power work? How do you make it accountable? What are the narratives that people have that we can engage that speak to the fact that they're making a choice between medicine and dog food or between medicine and paying the rent? How do we expose to the lived experiences of people who basically are being exploited so that we can overturn the notion that to be voiceless is to be powerless? I mean, we need to find ways to amplify through the lived experiences of people who are oppressed the nature of the problems that they have, the real meaning of the problems that they have. Secondly, it seems to me you can't have a politics and an educational policy without a vision. And you can't have it without a language of critique and a language of hope. And thirdly, you can't have it without a narrative that resonates with people's lives. You need to understand what we might call a politics of identification. And that is, you have to talk and work in a language in which people can find themselves, in which they can recognize themselves. There is no democracy without a notion of translation. People can't translate, they're depoliticized. Next, it seems to me, we have to ditch the notion of populism. Because populism, in a fundamental way, on the right and the left, always operates off binarism. There's them and there's us. There's no way to begin to understand how people that we don't like are basically attached to problems that actually are injurious to them and their children. Next, you've got to talk about building an infrastructure that educates people. You have to begin to talk about the need for public health. Any educational democratic vision that matters is going to have to flip a script. And that script is around questions of freedom and individualism. And we're going to have to recognize, particularly in light of the coronavirus crisis, that we're all interconnected, that there is such a thing as society in spite of Margaret Thatcher. There is such a thing as the social. There is such a thing as the common good. And that benefits everyone. But it only benefits everyone if we merge two kinds of rights with a third right. It's not enough to have political rights and individual rights. You've got to have economic rights. If you don't have economic rights, then you're caught in a language and a discourse and a mechanism of survival. And with the other two rights don't mean much. To be perfectly honest with you, if I'm out every day struggling just to feed my family and to pay my rent, do you think I really care about these larger arguments about politics and want to appear on podcasts to talk about them? I don't think so. I mean, you have to provide the basic conditions for the capacities to develop that people have to be able to think outside of the language of survival. And so we need narratives that 
talk to public health. You know, talk about why it's important. Why a universal wage is important. Why worker regulations are important. Why worker rights are important. Why education is important. So what am I saying? I'm saying we've got to reclaim the language of democracy and the institutions that make it viable. And we have to couple that with a left that basically is willing to come together around A, the rebirth of radical democracy and democratic socialism, and B, the death of capitalism. <laughs> I mean, you know, the ending of capitalism is the exposure of how it basically works. That's a major project. And it seems to me, until we can make education central to politics, that project will fail. You can't have politics without education. It doesn't work. I'm sorry, you know, if you don't want to talk about changing consciousness, you're not going to do the hard work. It's one thing to say these 74 million that support Trump are fascists, you know, they're nothing more than white supremacists, militia. That's easy. That's too easy. I really want to know what the conditions are that drive people into that paradigm, that make them so susceptible to hate, to bigotry, the willingness to become part of a cult, to all of a sudden lose their agency, give it up in the name of somebody who says, I'm your savior. I know everything. I'm the smartest guy in the world. I can solve all your problems. Lastly, we live in a country mocked by two things that are dangerous. We live in a country mocked by a culture of immediacy. The, the overflow of information and the spectacle is overwhelming. The spectacle now dominates our lives. And it seems to me to the degree that that spectacle dominates our lives, there isn't enough fundamental time to be able to think at all. It's very difficult to sort of think anymore. Secondly, it seems to me we need to create the spaces and the possibilities where real dialogue can take place, you know, where people can begin to talk to each other. We can create an ecosystem at odds with a commercially driven commodified system. We have that in the alternative media. What we don't have is we don't have institutions, because they're all neoliberal institutions, that now can create the intellectuals and the social movements, the linkages between academia and the social movements that can make that educational ecosystem really part of a much larger cultural apparatus. I wanted to just note one thing about the 74 million point that you made. I agree that there's always a need to go deeper to why is it that people did say yes to white supremacy? Where does that come from? And the need to go go deeper into that. I do think that I have some hesitancy when people talk about the driving force for me, too many people, especially the media, I would say is the number one group that does this, is the insistence on focusing on so-called economic grievances and the focus on that these are people that are the myth of that these are working people who were drawn just because he made promises for their economic well-being. I think that that whitewashes the history of this country and how people's thinking is shaped by the formation and of this country and, and then its legacy continuing. I know from your writing that that is not the perspective that you take, but I think that it is a perspective that too many have, especially the media have fed. They fed it to people consistently, a consistent diet in which we should really pay attention to these grievances instead of paying attention to the grievances of those on the receiving end of the past four years criminal. My, my argument is not that the people who are the oppressors are the victims. I think that's nonsense, actually. It's nothing more than a, it's a liberal ideology. And it, it overlooks the power of fascism. And it basically believes that capitalism can simply be reformed by not shaming people. To me, that's nonsense. It goes nowhere. 
I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, I, I thought that's what I was saying in a different way. I just wanted to, for our listeners, I wanted to make sure that that gets pointed no, out. That, that, needs to, that needs to be clarified. I mean, I think that what we really need to understand are the deep-seated institutional, political, and cultural apparatuses that have so ingrained the logic of racism, the attack on democracy, the attack on workers, the attack on the social state, the attack on the welfare state. But I think there's something else. I think the question we have to ask is that we have to ask who benefits from this? Who benefits from this? This is not about victimizing people who basically are fascist. It's about who benefits. The 1%, the corporate elite, the financial elite. What new social formations have come into power that need to be named, and if I may say it, exposed and collectively fought against? The other issue that I'm raising is not that I think we should sort of suggest that the neo-fascists are somehow disillusioned. To be honest, I don't really have a lot of sympathy with neo-fascists at all. And I don't believe in balance. I believe in the truth and I believe in struggling for it. I think the real issue is there are many people who are susceptible to these kinds of logics who are not neo-fascists. They're not militarists who were saying, yeah, 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 I mean, black people are taking our jobs. And wow, you know, the white race is being eliminated. And well, what's going on here? Listen, you hear that language enough and you actually see intelligent people believing it. The question is not looking at the oppressors and defining them as, as victims. The real issue is what gives that ideology so much power? Why is it convincing? What are the apparatuses that produce it? What are the apparatuses that legitimate it? How is it that the logic of hate can become so institutionalized? And how does it draw on history to do that? Which actually goes back to a point that I had missed, is the question of historical consciousness. I mean, you live in a country that's mocked by social and historical amnesia to the 200th degree. You know, when you get a Trump leaving office calling for patriotic education, defending the Confederacy, talking about eliminating the, the 1619 project because it's dangerous, claiming that the Democratic Party is a party of leftists. These are not just political... Not just leftists, communists. Yeah, uh, communists, exactly. That the communists are real enemies, right? Of course, Trump is too stupid to ever be a communist because they ask important questions. It seems to me that that is not just about ideology in the narrow sense. That's about the erasure of history. And it seems to me that when you have civic culture being eradicated, when you have the systematic erosion of any notion of shared citizenship, when happiness becomes a private right, when you have a culture of self-absorption, to go back to neoliberalism, you know, I really don't want to underplay here, and I, we haven't talked about this, but I'm sorry. I mean, all the questions you're asking about fascism, about what's happened here, the poisonous legacy of Trump and where did it come from, cannot be separated from the most dangerous ideology of the 20th century, which is neoliberalism. Clearly the most dangerous ideology, normalized all over the world. Its impact has been horrendous on the planet, on the depoliticization of massive populations, the growth of massive inequality in wealth and power, but more importantly, the normalization of the notion there is no alternative to capitalism. And that self-interest is all that matters, that basically greed is okay, that we're all involved in a war with each other, that social Darwinism is the norm, that money should drive politics, that any notion of compassion is basically a weakness, that there's no such thing as solidarity, there are only private interests and self-interest gets elevated to a national policy. You have to try to understand the effect that that has had are not only lending people to be more susceptible to white supremacy and utterly capitalist policies, but not being able to imagine an alternative world. 
that's going to be challenged on a, on a massive level. You don't challenge that, you're in trouble. I guess I'm going to ask two questions, basically, and I think that they're connected. And you can feel free to answer either of them or neither of them. But I think this is an important way to kind of wrap up. What are some of your predictions for the near future and over the next few years? This kind of connects to your comments that you were just talking about as we enter, you know, what Walden Bellow calls America's Weimar period. And then connected to that, if you had any comments on Trump's farewell video shared last night, which he stated, the movement we started is only just beginning and now is rumored to be planning his own political party. I think the latter suggests something that we've been talking about for 40 minutes, and that is anybody who believes that Trump and Trumpism are the same thing is really mistaken, that Trumpism has a long afterlife, and that what all Trump testifies to is that it's a movement much larger than himself, though he didn't explicitly say that. And I think we need to be wary of that, and we need to be aware that the United States is on the abyss of fascism and authoritarianism, and that we need to be conscious of the fact that democracy is, is in its death knell. That's important to understand. I think prior to that, I must say I'm more helpful than I am pessimistic. I'm hopeful because I see the range of oppression, capitalism, neoliberal societies being identified in multiple ways that are creating a kind of shared discourse among young people that allows them to not just simply come together in ways unlike we've ever seen before, ways in which students can walk out of high schools and basically stop those schools from even functioning by linking basically gun violence to state violence. You see, of course, the George Floyd movement, you know, bringing together a whole range of people who are now starting to make connections. If we don't have a comprehensive understanding of politics, it's gonna fail. We need to connect the dots. To read more from Henry, visit truthout.org. Thanks for listening. The DOJ and FBI aren't charging some of the Capitol rioters. The 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump now face backlash from the GOP, including primary challengers and censure. Historian and novelist Peter Manso tweeted the truth when he wrote, quote, most alarming about the events of the past month may be that apparently there will be no consequences for those who push the disinformation that nearly broke the country and may yet do so. No consequence except for the sad sacks who put their bodies on the line for the lie, end quote. No matter what, we know that nothing positive will happen without people demanding it. We will not silence our demands for justice, for conviction in the name of political expedience, healing, or unity. We won't unite with fascists. Visit refusefascism.org for important announcements this week as the impeachment trial for Trump approaches. While there, sign up for action alerts and to support this show and the essential work of the refusefascism.org movement, click the donate button or Venmo refuse-fascism. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest and rate and review to help us reach more listeners. And I want to hear from you. If you have thoughts on this or other episodes, ideas of guests who should be brought on the show, or arguments that need to be heard, write me at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org or on Twitter at Sambi Goldman. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Stay safe, not silent, and I'll see you in the street soon.